Pray for Nikki Springfield. She was feeling uh, nauseous and uh, lightheaded, and uh, some of the ladies had to take her home this morning. So we don't know if she had a spike in uh, blood pressure or you know a drop in blood pressure. But anyway, she was dizzy. So. Okay, Psalm 52. I finally got my Kingdom of God book done. publisher and I was telling someone that now the publisher will have it for nine months it's hard to believe isn't it they have an editor who goes through it and will make all kinds of recommendations saying you didn't word this correctly uh, this is not clear and they'll make suggestions and then it goes to an English editor who checks all the grammar and then it goes to a scripture editor who checks every verse to make sure I quoted it right so uh, then I don't know what happens. <laughs> it gets lost in the deep hole for several more months and comes out. So anyway, in April, it will be out in April. Okay? Okay, so anyway, uh, I feel somewhat relieved. It ended up being 335 pages. And they will probably chop it down to 256 pages. So, I, and I want to tell you up front, I dedicated it to the president's class. Between my wife and the president's class, <laughs> or my grandkids in the president's class, or my sons, I chose the president's class. I chose. I'm a crazy person, and I will pay for this the rest of my life. So when you see it, they'll just say dedicated to the president's class, because I thought you have stood with. You all keep asking every week, when's this book going to be done? He asked that for the past six years. And I figured, you deserve recognition for that. So anyway, thanks for praying for me. Now, Psalm 52. You'll notice immediately that it only has nine verses, making one of the shorter psalms, but it carries a pretty big impact. And if you look at the superscription, you notice it's a detailed superscription over top of the psalm, and it says, to the chief musician. So this means it is these lyrics will now go into the hands of the chief musician who writes the music for the psalm, and it will be uh, performed during worship services, probably by the uh, tabernacle choir, and then later on the temple choir. So the musician takes it and puts it to music. You'll notice the nature of the psalm. It says a contemplation, or if you have the Hebrew word, it says maskil, which means instruction. Uh, there are teachings in this psalm that will be put to music that the congregation is supposed to, uh, to learn and apply to their own lives. And this is what it's going to be about. You'll see how that's, what that's all about. And then we discover the background of the psalm. It says uh, it comes from David and it takes place. It's about when Doeg, I might call him dog occasionally, <laughs> But I might add this. He gives dogs a bad name. He gives a dog a bad name. So uh, this guy is, uh, is worse than the worst kind of mutt that you can think of. His name is Doeg. It takes place when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. So that's the background. So, if you want to know what the psalm's about, you need to know what that story's about. When Doeg goes to King Saul and says, 
David's gone to the house of Ahimelech. Now that story is a very interesting one because it takes place when King Saul, uh, when Saul is the king of Israel. And Saul is a man who uh, is jealous of David because Dave, God has chosen David to be his king, but Saul is the king. Saul's the people's choice. David's God's choice. And Saul is jealous of David, and he's paranoid because he thinks there's a groundswell of support for David, and he may end up being overthrown. And so his desire is to eliminate David. So he seeks to kill David. And as a result, David is on the run. <laughs> he's running for his life from King Saul. And he's to the point where he has no weapons. <clears throat> you know, it's like you get a call and says, you need to get out of there immediately. Somebody's after you. You don't, you know, pack up. You don't have time for that. He has to escape for his life. He has no weapons, and he has no food, and he's very hungry, and he doesn't know what to do. He has to do things clandestinely because the word gets back to King Saul. He's a dead man, so... He finally goes into the tabernacle and he meets with the priest, Ahimelech, and asks him for some food. Okay? So, in order to see that story, I want you to turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. <clears throat> and this is a very interesting story if you have not read this. So I've given you the background. So I'm going to pick up the story in 1 Samuel 21 and verse 6. David goes to the priest asking for some food. <clears throat> Look at verse 6. 1 Samuel 21, 6. So the priest gave him holy bread because there was no bread there but the show bread which had been taken before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man, now this is the showbread that's in the tabernacle, you know, before the Holy of Holies, right before that curtain, there was a table called showbread, and it was uh, a dedication to the Lord, and no one was supposed to eat that bread. It was changed out every day. Uh, but you weren't supposed to eat that bread, that was sort of holy bread. But the priest says, well, this is the only thing we got. I have to give you the showbread. So David takes. Now verse 7. There was a certain man of the servants of Saul who was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg. Okay, so now we're going to find what this dog-like creature is all about. He was an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. So he was uh, Saul's shepherd. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. <clears throat> David uh, saying, I'm running for my life, but he puts it in a positive, <laughs> positive way. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is no one, there is no other except that one here. And David said, 
There is none like it. Give it to me. So he takes Goliath's old sword. So he has Goliath's sword in one hand, and in the other hand, the showbread that's in the tabernacle. Now we'll pick up in chapter 22 with the rest of the story. Look at verse 6. Now when Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, hey, we know where he is. Now Saul was staying in Gilbea under the the tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all of his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjaminites, mites, Benjamites, will the son of Jesse, meaning David, give every one of your fields, give every one of you fields and vineyards, and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me. See, this guy's paranoid. And there is none who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. Now Saul's son is Jonathan. And he and David are good friends. And uh, they meet behind Saul's back. And they go out into Starbucks and have a coffee. And, uh, and uh, Jonathan says to David, Don't tell my father I'm with you, boy. You know, so Saul's upset that all these people around him are never telling him that his son Jonathan and David are friends and doing things together. He says, what's David doing? Promising me land or something? Why are you keeping these secrets from me? He's very upset. He's very paranoid. So, he, that's what he's talking about. So in verse 8 he says, all of you have conspired against me. There's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servants against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Dog. There he goes. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul. And he said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him. And he gave him provisions. He gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech, priest, the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's house, and the priest who were not. And they all came to the king to bring him here. We have to settle this issue. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here am I, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and your son, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of the Lord for him, that he should rise up against me to lie in wait, as it is this day? So Ahimelech answered the king, and he said, Who among all of your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son in law who goes at his bidding? Who's honorable in his house? Did not I did I not begin? Did I then begin to inquire of the Lord for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant, or to any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. I didn't know about all this stuff that was going on with you guys. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. 
And then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also was with David, and because they knew when he fled, and they didn't tell me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priest of the Lord. I'm not going to do that for you. He's losing all kinds of support, King Saul. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and kill the priest. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priest, he struck with the edge of the sword. Both men and women and children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. And so now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped. One of them escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priest. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I've caused the death of all the people your father's house. Come and stay with me. So there's the background. Okay. So the background is the priest gives David supplies, Doeg sees it, tells Saul, and then as a result, all these people die because they help King Saul, and it is Doeg who kills them. Okay. So that's the historical background. Now the psalm will make sense. Okay. So let me give you the outline of the psalm. We have nine verses, and here's the outline. Verses 1 through 5, David in the psalm, or the song, addresses Doeg, and says, tells us what kind of a person he is. That's verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 and 7, uh, we uh, are able to uh, see the lessons that are learned as a result of this event. The lessons that are learned, verses 6 and 7. And then, verses 8 and 9, David contrasts himself with Doeg. David said, I've learned a lesson, and he contrasts himself with Doeg. Okay? So let's look at verse 1. Doeg uh, is addressed, and his sins are revealed. Okay? So look at verse 1 of Psalm 52. Here's what it says. Addressing Doeg. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Now notice two things about this verse. Number one, he's described as a mighty man. Now Doeg's not a mighty man. He's a weasel. You know what I mean. Uh, he's a shepherd who happens to be at the right place at the right time. He sees David and the priest do something, and then he squeals on them to his advantage so he can be moved up in the ranks and become... Uh, a favorite of King Saul. So when David calls him a mighty man, which, by the way, is the same words that would be used to describe a great warrior hero, uh, he's using irony. This man is anything but a mighty man. He's actually a coward. And uh, he does kill people, but that's not what a hero does. He doesn't kill innocent people like Doeg did. So he's described here. And then it tells us... Uh, what he does. Look what he says. Why do you boast in your evil? He brags about what he's done. He glories in it. He uh, says, I remember, you know, a few years ago when uh, I happened to just be in the temple and 
starts bragging about this. What should cause him shame causes him self-satisfaction. So he boasts in his what? Evil. You see that? His mischief, some translations say. So most people don't brag about being doing something evil. But this man does. He is sort of a warped type person. And then look at the second part of verse 1. It says, the goodness of God endures continually. Now, in order to understand this verse, you need to realize the verse is a question. You see how it opens? It opens with the word, why? You see that? And here's the question. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. You don't have to resort to evil. You shouldn't be boasting in evil. Hey, God's good. He'd take care of you. You didn't have to weasel your way in and get on Saul's good side. If God wants you promoted, he'll promote you. His, he's always out for good. He always is, uh, wants to do what is right. So why do you do that in light of the fact that God is a good God? And he's a good God always. His goodness endures continually. And then he says this about Doeg. Your tongue devises a destruction. Uh, it plans destruction. Like a sharp razor working deceitfully. The tongue is as dangerous as a sword. In fact, it's more dangerous than a sword because he has, pre, has a premeditated plan. I'm going to squeal on these guys to my advantage. And he does it deceitfully. And it says that it's like a, the tongue is like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You know, if you have a sword and you come to somebody with a sword, they know what you're going to do. That's pretty much out in the open. But how about if I have a razor blade? Uh, really a sharp razor. I could cut you and you wouldn't even know that you've been cut. You wouldn't feel it for a few minutes. It's done very deceptively. And uh, a lot of people who are in the mob and <laughs> things like that, they had to use razor blades and sharp instruments uh, very effectively so that they're in a crowd and they actually can cut somebody's throat or whatever, some artery, and the people don't even know they're bleeding until a few minutes later, suddenly they see the blood. And that's what the tongue is like. The tongue is like a weapon, far worse than a sword, which you use out in the open, because the tongue can be used very deceitfully. So, what we have here in verses 1, verses one and 2 are Doeg's actions. His actions. Okay? In 3 and 4, you have his attitude. Okay? Verses 1 and 2, Doeg's actions... Verses 3 and 4, we see his attitude. Look at this. You love. See, that's an attitude. You love evil more than good. Lying rather than speaking righteousness. And you can see that what he does up in verse 1, he boasts in evil. You see that? That's what he does. In verse 3, he loves evil. That's his attitude. What does he love? He loves evil more than what? Good. You see that in verse 3? He loves evil more than good. Who's good? Up in verse 1. 
God is good. You see that? You see how uh, David is writing these lyrics so that you can see this comparison between Doeg and what he wants to do? Doeg would rather have Saul's favor than he has God's favor. He would rather do something evil than he would rather do, than do something good. Okay? Uh, he says, you love lying rather than speaking righteousness. And then he says this. That's why he hates God. Selah. You need to think about that. Uh, so in the music, there's probably some sort of lull or whatever. The choir just stops singing. The people in the audience uh, and the music just plays. The audience can think upon this. Am I like Doeg? Do I do things like this? Do I talk about people? Do I reveal secrets? Do I do things for my advantage? See, and so it's designed to make us think about that. Uh, and think about the situation. Where's Doeg when this psalm is written? He's dead. David's king when the psalm's written. Doeg's dead. Where's King Saul? He's dead. Where's David? He's king. Where's God? Well, his goodness still endures forever. He's still around. So you need to think about these things. And then verse 4. Look at this attitude. You love devouring words. You deceitful tongue. Uh, he has words that devour. His words produce death in people. Uh, James says the tongue is an unruly member. It's like a, like a fire that destroys and devours. And that's what David says here. And then look at the result of all this. Verse 5. God shall likewise destroy you forever. You destroy them, God will destroy you forever. Now, I want to show you something. At the end of verse 1, it says... God's goodness endures continually. God's goodness, God's goodness, God's goodness endures continually. In verse 5 it says, God shall destroy you forever. Which shows you that judgment is part of God's goodness. Whenever justice is done, that's a good thing. And God is righteous when He judges. It's part of His goodness. Now we come to the rest of verse 5. He shall take you away and He will pluck you out of your dwelling place. He's talking to Doeg. And uproot you from the land of the living. Think about it. Think about it because you don't want this to happen to you. Where is Doeg's boasting now? He has been, his mouth has been shut, the tables have been turned. Now, I want you to notice verses 1 through 5 were all directed or addressed directly to Doeg. You see the personal pronoun, second person pronoun, you. Why do you boast in evil? Look at verse 2. Your tongue. Verse 3. You love evil. Verse 4. You love evil. Look at verse 5. God will destroy you. Middle verse 5. He shall take away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and upright you. Those are all spoken directly to Doeg. Now, in verses 6 and 7, David sort of draws the, uh, the lessons from this. And he says this in verse 6. 
the righteous also shall see and fear. The righteous shall also see and fear. See what? The righteous shall also see. See what? The judgment? Uh, we'll see the story unfold. What? What is it? Something. This whole story and the judgment. What it produces. See. And look what happens. It says the righteous in verse six shall see and fear. Number one, when they see, they will fear. And number two, they shall laugh. They shall see and number one fear. And number two, they will laugh. They fear because of the seriousness of the situation. And they laugh at the folly of the situation. They laugh because they fear because they see what happens in a situation like this. That it only produces judgment. And they fear. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This, we should always fear God. But then they laugh because they see the folly of the situation. This guy thought he could do this and get away with it. And they go, man, who would do something like that? That's crazy. And guess what? We do the same thing all the time. Sin, think we can get away with it. Say something, think it'll never get back. Never, never considering God's listening to the whole thing. Even though we're doing it in secret. We're off somewhere on the side in the corner whispering something. They think no one sees us, no one hears us. But God does. That's the folly of it all. So he says in verse 6, And they shall laugh at him, saying, verse 7, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but he trusted in the abundance of his riches, and he strengthened himself in his wickedness. That's what they're laughing at. They're laughing at the folly of this man. This is Doeg's epitaph. This is his memorial. This is what's written on his tombstone. Verse 7. Look what it said. Here's the man. Here lies the man. Here's his epitaph. Here lies the man. And what's on his tombstone? What's his memorial inscription? Number one, he did not make God his strength. That's a negative. That's <laughs> what he didn't do. Number two, what he did do. He trusted in the abundance of his own riches. And number three, another positive, but it's really a negative. He strengthened himself in his wickedness. Very interesting. Wealth and wickedness. Same verse. Wealth and wickedness are a lethal combination. Wealth and wisdom are a great combination. And here's a man who is trusted in his wealth and therefore thinks he can do whatever he wants to do and get away with it and it doesn't work. And notice the word strength there. It's used twice in verse 7 did not make God his strength or his refuge, but strengthened himself. But strengthened himself. Instead of looking to God, he looks to himself. See, this is a man who 
is out of touch with reality. Now in verse 8, David contrasts himself with Doeg, and he makes some resolutions. So look at verse 8. David says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Doeg is like a guy who doesn't trust God, doesn't look to God for his strength or his refuge. But me, I'm like a green olive tree. Okay, What is he like? He's like a green olive tree. What's a green olive tree? That's a, a live, vibrant olive tree, and the sap is running through its branches. Uh, olive trees are some of the strongest trees known to the human race. Uh, you can go to the Mount of Olives in the Holy Land, and some of those olive trees in that garden are the same ones that were there when Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago. David says, that's what I'm like. That's what he's like. Where is David when he's like that? I am like a green olive tree, verse 8. Where? In the house of the Lord. I'm always near the Lord. I'm in God's presence. I seek refuge in God. I want to be near God, he says. And then he says in verse 8, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Uh, Doeg trusted in himself. Now, notice he says, I am a green olive tree. I trust. Now, this is what he's doing right now. Right now, David says, uh, I trust the Lord. That's what I'm doing. And I don't plan on changing that. Then in verse 9, he says what he will do. In verse 8, this is what he does do. I trust in God. I am like. But look at verse 9. This is what he will do. I will praise you. Now he talks to God directly. I will praise you forever. I will praise you forever. The far cry, the way David, the far cry and the far much different between the way David uses his tongue and Doeg uses his tongue. Doeg squeals. David praises God. Doeg goes to the king, tells what he has seen to get the king's favor. David praises God. He has God's favor. That's what he will do. His plan is never to stop trusting and never stop praising God. Why will he do that? Look what he says in verse 9. Because you have done it. You've done what? You've done it? What does that mean, you've done it? Uh, before we answer what he's done, notice you have done. Uh, have done means that it's something that's, what? Already done. I will trust you now. I will praise you in the future because in the past, you've always come through for those who trust you. You've done it in the past. Anybody who's put their strength in you, anyone who's trusted you in the past, you've come through, and therefore, on that basis, I'm going to praise you in the future. And look what he says. In the presence of your saints. Now, this is interesting. In the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name. In the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name. Now, this is the king speaking. 
What he says is that publicly, for all people to see, I will never take things into my own hands. I'll never try to control the situation. I will, when it's time for us to move, I'll say, friends, now it's time for us to move. But I'll only do it when you tell me what to do. I'm going to wait on you before I make a move. And I'm going to do it publicly for everybody to see. Totally unlike King Saul. He couldn't wait on the Lord. We're to call, we're called to wait on the Lord and not to move before he wants us to. King Saul called upon the name of the Lord and God didn't answer him. And he called again and God didn't answer him. Called again and God didn't answer him. And instead of waiting, he's not even answer. I'm going to the witch of Ender. She can give me some answer about what I should do in the situation. You know, so he doesn't wait on the Lord, King Saul. And Doeg, instead of trusting in the goodness of God, he says, you know, God will work this thing out between David and Ahimelech and King Saul. And, you know, I just have to just sit back and wait and watch and see what he does. No, he takes the bull by the horns and he trusts in his own strength and his own deceit to get things finished. David says, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I will praise God forever because you always come through in the past. You've done it in the past. And in the presence of your saints, for everybody to see, they're going to see I'm a man of God and I'm willing just to wait on the Lord. And he ends it with the reason why he'll do it. Because it is good. Your name is good. You're good and live up to your name. Notice it ends the same way it starts. The goodness of the Lord, of God, endures forever. And so David says, I'll do it because your name's good. If you had plus I, you have my name on it, you have my, you know, I'll shake on it. My name is as good as my bond. My handshake is as good as my bond. Well, it is with God. And David says on that basis, he says, I will wait on the Lord because your name is good. Now that's a lesson for all of us. Whenever we devise schemes and we come up with plots and plans, instead of trusting God regarding the situations, instead of waiting on the Lord, get out in front of God, we always make a mistake. I want to ask you a question. What is it in your life that you should be waiting on the Lord for right now? And you're coming up with your own little plans <laughs> to get something done because you think, can't wait any longer. As if God doesn't know the situation and God doesn't have your best interest at heart. Can you wait on the Lord? What is it that you should be waiting on the Lord for? And can you trust Him with it? Because when we take things in our own hands and we don't wait on the Lord, we are in essence practical atheist. With our lips, we say we believe in God, but guess what? Do we? Ah, if there wasn't a God, it doesn't matter. I just take this. Just give me that. I'll take care of this. As if there wasn't a God, you see. And uh, we have to be careful. And so he opens the next psalm with these words. Addressed to God's people now. Not addressed to atheists. Not addressed to pagans. Look how he opens the next psalm. 
The fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. Oh, on his lips, he says there's a God, but guess what? His attitude as, is as if there is no God. So, the lesson that we learned from this dog, <laughs> Doeg or whatever his name is, is hey, watch what you say. Make sure your motives are always right, your attitude is right. You don't plot devices. You don't step out in front of the Lord. Realize that the goodness of God endures continuously, continuously, and He has your best interests at heart. And when you wait for Him, the best solution is found. We'll pick up at Psalm 53 next time. Lord, we thank you for uh, a passage that has such richness in its background and its history that it allows us to, to learn lessons for our own lives in the 21st century. And we never forget about this man named Doeg. And help us not to emulate him, but to emulate uh, King David in this situation. We trust in the Lord praises you continually. Because you're good. And you're good all the time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.